quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. In this episode of Boss Files, he is one of the most outspoken CEOs in the world, vocal on controversial issues like guns, gay marriage, and race. Pretty soon, Starbucks visionary leader Howard Schultz will hand over the reins of the $85 billion company. Why now? And who will fill his shoes? I sat down with Howard Schultz and incoming Starbucks CEO Kevin Johnson in December right here in New York. Howard, you have said that you love this company as much as your family. So how did you come to the decision? When did you come to the decision that now was the right time to hand it over and to hand it to Kevin. Well, Kevin and I have worked together both on the board and in the last two years as, as he's been in the company as a president and CEO for almost 10 years now. And in that period, uh, we basically have co-authored the long-term strategy of the company, which we outlined for the investors today. Right. And I think we also began to understand after the roastery opened that we had a new crown jewel inside the company that needed to be exploited. And I think if I look at the roastery and the reserve brand and all that it could represent for the future, it's perfectly suited for what I am capable of doing. I also think uh, with great humility uh, that Kevin's skill base and experience is better suited to run Starbucks on a go-forward basis than myself. He's better than you right now to run this company? Yes. Why? Yeah. His skill base and experience, especially with regard to a global enterprise, and how, how customer-facing technology is going to play a huge role in our future. And also, I'm not leaving. I'm, I'm around to help and support and coach whatever I but can. But you're not going to hover. You no. said you're not going to hover. No, I, I, I made some mistakes uh, many years ago. It was a different time in my life. I wasn't as emotionally as prepared as I am now. But I am ready, uh, more than ready, to hand over the reins to Kevin. I made it very clear to the investors today that Kevin is going to be the CEO of the company and he has the last word. So my colleague Paula Monica, I think, put it best when he said, you have some venti-sized shoes to fill. That's what he said. How are you going to lead Starbucks, Kevin? I mean, how much will you lead it like Howard has? How much will this be your own footprint? You've got a ton of experience, especially when it comes to the tech side of the business, Microsoft, Juniper Networks. How do you make this your own while also building on sure. what Howard built? Well, first of all, I'll just comment on what Howard just said. We co-authored the strategy. So the strategy that we put together that we shared today, you know, my fingerprints are all over that, along with Howard's and along with the rest of our leadership team. So that's, that's number one. Number two, you know, I realize I'm not Howard. I'm Kevin. So I'm going to lead in an authentic way. And, uh, you know, I think I've had the opportunity to get to know the management team over the last two years. I've had to travel the world and worked in every part of this company. Mm -hmm. I've got connected to the partners. And so they know me. I know them. And, uh, you know, I, I believe in the strategy and what we're doing. But I also know that I have to be authentic in my leadership. So one of the things that Howard has done that has set this company apart from so many others and set him apart as an executive from so many others is that he has not been afraid to use his voice in this platform to speak out about 
social issues, controversial issues, from guns to gay rights to politics, you name it, to the election. Will you do the same? Well, first of all, I think the mission of the company to inspire and nurture the human spirit, that is, that is an authentic mission. When you talk to partners around the company, it comes through. And part of what we do is leverage our scale for good. Meaning, if we see something that we think uh, we can help make positive social impact on, we're not afraid to take a stand and, to, to, and to, to have a voice in doing it in a constructive, respectful way. That is part of the fabric of the company, mm -hmm. and I don't see that changing. Howard, when you took a step back, I mean, a lot of people have brought this up now since you made this announcement. When you took a step back in 2000, the company eventually floundered so much so you had to come back. You came back in 2008. You turn it around. What tells you that's not going to happen this time? Why is this a different moment? Uh, two reasons. One, I think that was during the cataclysmic financial crisis in America and around the world, which had a significant impact on Starbucks. And I think the team at the time was not as prepared to really navigate through that crisis. But if you look at Starbucks today versus 2008, this is a completely different company with scale and capability and experience and clearly the success we've had around the world. I think the management team, coupled with Kevin, uh, there's no doubt in my mind that the success, the enduring success of the company is going to continue. We have to earn it, obviously, but it's a completely different time. Mm -hmm. I have no concern whatsoever. As you said, I love this company. I take it so personally, and I have every ounce of confidence in the team and Kevin and the future of our company. Poppy, let me just add, Howard and I have worked together for a long time. Yeah. And, you know, we're friends. I hear you finish each partners. other's sentences. Is that true? That's, uh, that's true. Okay. <laughs> But we've worked we've worked with each other for a long time, and uh, I have great respect for for Howard. You know, he's an iconic entrepreneur and a leader. Uh, and having him around as my partner uh, to continue to navigate things with me, I consider that a gift. Mm. You know, there are things Howard and I have in common, uh, but then there's unique things that we each bring to the table. And I think in many ways we make each other better. You um, have spoken publicly a little bit about a brush with cancer that you had when you were at Juniper. And it's part of the reason that you left, uh, because you wanted to really have something, lead something that meant a lot to you. And you've called this company a gift. How does that all play out now that you're at the top? Well, I think that there are moments in one's life that are clarifying moments that prompt you to step back and say, you know, what am I going to do with the precious time that I have on this planet, and how do I make it count? And so certainly, at this stage of my life, doing something that I love, that I think has positive impact on people I love, mm -hmm. is, is important to me. And so it's nothing about title uh, or role, it's everything about being a part of a journey. And I think Starbucks is a very special journey. So when you look overall at, at the company, I mean, since the recession, since Howard came, came back and turned things around, Starbucks shares are up more than 1,500%. It's a company worth nearly $85 billion. Um, but you lead this next wave. And a lot of this next wave is the tech company part of, of Starbucks. Your background is Microsoft. Your background is Juniper. Should we think about this still as a coffee company? Is this a tech company, especially under you? Because in the conference call when you were announced uh, joining the company a few years ago, mobile was used 34 times on the call. Wow. Coffee was used 34 times. Well, perhaps that's reflective of uh, the seismic shift that we see in consumer retail behavior today. You know, many consumers now are shopping online. 
and yet there's still brick-and-mortar uh, retail outlets. I think we like to think that we have extended our in-store experience to a digital experience. And we've done it, in, I think, in a very simple, elegant way. Hopefully that, is, that the digital experience is every bit as Starbucks-esque as the in-store experience. We're a coffee company. We are, in the, we, are, we are a company that is in the business of uh, human connection. And we do that over coffee. Our stores create a, a place for people to connect with one another and our digital assets now but are extending that. I want to talk about social impact because when we spoke on the phone the day this announcement was made, Howard, you said part of why I'm leaving is to focus on social impact. And you said to me, given the state of things in this country, there is a need to help those left behind. What does that mean? How should we read that? What are you going to do? Because you've done a lot of social impact from the CEO seat. I think as Kevin just said, I think we, we clearly view the fact that we have stores in almost every community in America and have an understanding of what's happening in cities across the country. So I'll give you two examples. Uh, we have a significant homeless problem, both in Seattle and around the country. Uh, just this past week, we announced that we are going to make a significant both contribution in terms of money and resources to try and create housing for people who are homeless in Seattle. That's a national crisis. In addition to that, one out of six people in America are hungry every single night without food. These are areas where I think uh, it, it's a natural place for us to play. It's not a political uh, cause, it's a cause for humanity. And I think we're going to continue to look for ways to leverage our scale for good. Uh, and, and I think and not do anything that would be disrespectful to the president-elect and not do anything that would in any way derail the support and confidence from one group or another mm -hmm. based on the fact that we want to help those who are in need. And we think there's an opportunity and a responsibility we have for our people and the communities we serve. You said recently, Howard, to the New York Times, I wanted to build the company my father never got to work for. Did you achieve that? And if you did, why and how? Well, my, I, yeah, I, I think I have achieved that. I just wish my father would have, would have been alive to see it. Uh, my, my dad was a blue-collar worker, uneducated, uh, Army vet, and uh, had a series of very bad jobs. And I think over his life became very bitter and angry that he was not respected in the workforce. And in many ways, that was a time in America where blue-collar workers did not get the kind of insurance and compensation that perhaps they deserved. He lost his health care. He lost health care, and, and so I think uh, my whole life has been dedicated to try and build the kind of company that would respect and dignify everyone, regardless of their station in life. So the short answer is yes, I think I have done that, uh, but there's more work to do. So Howard brings up blue-collar workers. And blue-collar workers along the Rust Belt are a lot of what uh, got the president-elect elected. They are people that, in many respects, have frankly been left behind. A large part of that has been um, technology. This is not just about global mm -hmm. trade. You know that well, being right. from the tech sector. As the new CEO soon, what do you say to those workers, Kevin, who are they're looking down the road and they have young kids at home and they're thinking, wow, my life livelihood is being replaced slowly by machines and, and robots. What's the future for them in America's workforce? Well, I think if you look at the, at the, the over 300,000 partners that proudly wear the Starbucks green apron, you know, we're demonstrating that we can create jobs and opportunities for people 
to come contribute, and at the same time, we'll fund and pay for their college education. You know, we think that uh, the world is always changing, and the world will always be changing. And so finding ways to show the empathy and the respect and help people deal with that change, I think is in many ways what Starbucks is about. It's about helping people deal with the challenges and the struggles in life and also celebrating the success and the joy. Will barista jobs ever be replaced by robots? We're in the business of human connection. I can't ever see a world where you go into a Starbucks and we don't have smiling, passionate baristas prepare you a beautiful handcrafted coffee with love. We're going to build, I think, 20 to 30 roasteries okay. uh, around the world. These are 20 to 30,000 square foot facilities. And we're going to build specialized reserve stores. Those stores, I think, uh, have an opportunity to create two, twice the volume and profit of a Starbucks store. But we have not opened one yet. So, so why? What's, what? How are you going to do that? So we're going to do it in a number of ways. First off, the first one is going to open up in Chicago, Illinois this summer. Uh, it'll be about twice the size of a traditional Starbucks. It'll, have, it'll be coffee forward. It'll have fresh food from the artisanal baker that we found in Italy called Princi. Mm-hmm. And we are introducing a new category, which is spirits and mixology, into the store. And so that's going to drive a new day part, a new source of revenue and profit. And we think there's going to be a huge opportunity for the reserve brand. And all of this, I think, the roastery and reserve brand will shine a halo on the entire company. And this is where I'm going to spend my time, and it's a big opportunity, and we shared that with the investors today, and it was really, I think, taken very well. And the question becomes, how do you not lose your way, Kevin, doing that? I mean, frankly, part of the problem in, in 2000 to 2008 was that you guys got into way too many businesses. I mean, you sold CDs, you sold music, you got into too many businesses. This, is, you- the, this is the coffee business, what, what we know. But this it's is, food, it's alcohol, how do you... Yeah, but it's, it's really a coffee store. It's a coffee store with an elevated premium experience that will elevate all things Starbucks. We are, we are innovating within our core business. Mm-hmm. And I made the example today, not unlike what Porsche has done with SUV, not unlike what Nike did with Air Jordan. These are examples of creating a premium brand inside your core business. I got a few few politics questions. After the election, you wrote a letter to all of Starbucks employees and partners and said you were shocked by the outcome of the election. Um, bef- right before the election, you said that, that the um, Donald Trump campaign w- was a vitriolic display of bigotry and hate and divisiveness, uh, noting that's not the future leadership of this country. Since then, you've said... It's our responsibility to give them an opportunity to govern and to come together. I think we have a moral obligation to do everything we can to ensure the fact that he and his team are successful. Uh, America needs a successful president, so does the world. If he calls on you, either of you, to advise him, we've seen people from both parties there. Rahm Emanuel was there today. Mm-hmm. Uh, would you do that? And what would your advice be? Um, my, my advice would be that I think the, the country really needs servant leadership. And uh, I think um, the country needs unity. And I think more than anything else, the country needs to come together. That would be my advice. Final question to you, because this is my first time getting to meet you, yeah. and a lot of, I think, America's first time getting to know you. What uh, should we know about Kevin Johnson that might surprise us? What do we not know about you? Wow. Well, you know, I guess, uh, uh, you know, my, my journey at Starbucks is something very special to me. And my two-year-old grandson is the other most joyful thing in my life. Sort right of the now. best things in the world, right? Those are the best things in the world. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you, Howard. Thank you, Bobby. Many thanks to Kevin Johnson, Starbucks' next CEO, and Howard Schultz for that. 
Now, back in September, Howard Schultz joined me for CNN Money's first American Opportunity Breakfast. We talked about a lot, including income inequality and Schultz's personal journey from growing up in public housing in Brooklyn to building Starbucks and becoming a billionaire. I also asked him, might he ever run for president? Every time I interview Howard, I ask him one question. Ten times I've asked, maybe? Probably more than that. So should we make it 11? (laughs) Okay. Will you ever run for president, Howard? You know, I, I think, uh, as we have discussed this many times, uh, my own life experience uh, has given me a unique perspective on uh, the plight of working-class American people. And uh, the position and the platform I've had at Starbucks has given me the voice and the opportunity to do many things that I don't think I could have ever done as an elected official. Having said that, I'm, I'm a young man. Uh, there's a lot of time in the future of the country and what I might and might not do. I would never say never, but this is not the right time. You have said no previously. This is the first time I've heard you say I'm a young man. It's <laughs> <laughs> true. Well, I, I've, been re- I've been reminded by friends of mine who heard me say that this morning that I'm, I'm no longer that young. So uh, we'll, we'll have to see how that goes. Okay. All right. So let's talk about where you're from. Sure. Uh, I live in Brooklyn now. No, you, you don't live in the Brooklyn right. that I'm from. That's my, that's my point. I live in a very different Brooklyn than yes. the Brooklyn you're from. You're from East New York, Brooklyn. You grew up in the projects. Yes. And I wonder, would you have the opportunity today that you did then to achieve all of this? Well, I, you know, I grew up in Canarsie and uh, the baby projects. Uh, as difficult as hard as it was, it it imprinted all of us who came from that part of the world uh, a a unique set of values and understanding that we lived on the other side of the tracks. But my mother felt very deeply that our station in life did not define our future. And I, I think the question you're asking is a very important one, especially as it's framed around why we're here today. Uh, There's almost 6 million young people in America today, ages from 16 to 24, mostly African-American and Hispanic, who are not in work and not in school, labeled as opportunity youth. Uh, There's so many people in America, one out of six, who are going hungry every night. And so uh, I think we have a situation where the chances and the percentages of those young people versus when I was a young boy, I think are a lot less to succeed. The question is, that is not an absolute. What can we do as private citizens and what can we do to encourage the fractured leadership and the lack of truth and authenticity that we've gotten from Washington for many years to be a catalytic change so we recognize that we are better than this, we must do things differently, and we must have real solutions and a lot less partisanship. Are we at a point where a child's destiny in many ways is is determined by their zip code. And I asked that because I was looking back at a, a column my colleague Fareed Zakari wrote back in, in 2013, and he cited this Harvard Berkeley study called The Equality of Opportunity. And it found something very simple and true and critical. It, it found that every year of exposure to a better environment, a better neighborhood for a kid, improves their chances of success by in a very material way, just living in a little bit better place. Are we at a stage in America where your zip code determines your destiny for far too many people? Well, I think the, the, the statistics and the evidence would certainly point to that direction. But again, uh, 
this is something, the status quo is not something we should be accepting. Uh, we need to transform the economic issues that have created this kind of gap. The future of the country and the promise of America and the American dream can't be only accessible to people of privilege who are white, who live in the right zip code. The other issue is that we are foregoing so much talent, so much resources, so many people who all they want is an opportunity, who can contribute to our society, who can pay taxes, who can build great families, who can buy a home. But if we fracture the hope and the promise of what the country has been built on by leaving so many people behind, the country and the promise of America will not come true. So let's talk about some of the things that Starbucks has done to try to achieve that, right? I mean, ultimately, you're responsible to your shareholders yes. and to your board. At the same time, a few years ago, you partnered with ASU and their online college and now cover entire college tuition for employees as they continue working at Starbucks to get a degree online. You have, for years, given full health benefits to anyone who works 20 hours or more, yeah. half time, really. You just raised wages, 5 to 15% for mm -hmm. employees. You guys don't publicly disclose what you pay in terms of the wages because it differs from state to state. Above minimum wage in every city in every America. state. But those things cost a lot of money. Mm. And I just, how do you square the two when ultimately you have to answer to your shareholders? And I know, you know, some, some have called you out before and some have said, should we really yeah. be spending this much money on healthcare? Well, I think first off, the, the, the price of admission to significantly engage in this kind of social impact initiatives is financial performance. And the company has performed remarkably well. In 1987, we had 11 stores and 100 employees. Today, there's 25,000 stores, 300,000 employees, and a market cap of almost $90 billion. So we have performed. The question is, how and why have we performed? We've performed because we have achieved the fragile balance between profit, conscience, and social impact. We've performed because we believed strongly early on that building trust and confidence with our people and asking them to perform at a high level would transfer to our customers. And as managers and leaders, we believe if we exceed the expectations of our people, they will exceed the expectations of our customers. We've also said that we must significantly make investment in our people and the communities we serve. We would have lower attrition, higher performance, and the equity of the Starbucks brand would grow, not because of advertising or promotion, but because of the authenticity of the experience. How do you know that? When you're, when you're well, getting ready to report your earnings, how do you know that it's been additive to, to the company? And, and I mean, it, ha it has to, well, the, to know, hit we, profit at some point. How do you square the two? Well, first off, the financial performance of the company would indicate that the equity of the brand and what I've just told you is indicative in terms of what we are saying. But I think we do a fair amount of research domestically and around the world, and I think Starbucks is the kind of company and brand that people have come to trust. Now with that comes expectations that we can't always meet. We're not perfect, we can't do everything. But I think we are living at a time right now, and this is so vitally important, where the rules of engagement for a public company today are very different. And what I mean by that is you can't come to work every day with the sole interest of only making money. You are not gonna attract and retain great people. Your customers are not gonna embrace that. You must demonstrate authentic, with great authenticity and truth that you're in business to do lots of things, including giving back to your people and serving your community. The result of all that, even in a country like China where we have 2,500 stores, has come true. 
And this is a universal language of trying to do the right thing and recognizing that you can't build a great enduring company solely because you are in business to make money. Goldman Sachs, whose business is just to make money, can't do this anymore. You told me a story this morning that I'd never heard uh, from you about the moment when you made that decision. And it was 25 years ago when a young man walked into your office. Tell us what happened. Well, 25 years ago, uh, a young man walked into, our, into my office when we had less than 20 stores and uh, closed the door and told me uh, in a very emotional way that he was suffering from AIDS. That was a subject that was taboo, a subject that was not discussed, a subject that was misunderstood. And we decided as a company that we would comprehensively cover all of his insurance and his partner and take care of everything he and his family needed. Unfortunately, he passed away, his partner passed away, but that was a moment of truth where we had to ask ourselves as a company and as people, what is our core purpose and reason for being? And our core purpose and reason for being in the mid-80s when we had very few stores, a private company, and losing money is the same core purpose and reason for being it is today, and that is build a great enduring company that balances profit with conscience and compassion. At the same time, you're doing this in a political environment, Howard, that you've called a circus, you've called it bombastic, you've said that the current politicians are not walking in the shoes of the American people, but then just a few months ago you launched a program trying to get every single Starbucks employee to register to vote. What is going on in Washington? Well, I, I would say it this way. Uh, Regardless of your political persuasion, I think everyone in this room, with probably 100% uh, participation, can agree that what we have witnessed over the last year is inconsistent with the values and guiding principles of the promise of our country. We can also agree that our parents and our grandparents would be embarrassed to see what we have witnessed. And yet, as private citizens, we are watching and observing and actually being bystanders and allowing this to go on. I travel perhaps more than any other CEO in the world, internationally and specifically to China. People cannot believe what is going on in this country. But what I would, what I would submit is even though the political season has highlighted all of this, this is nothing new. What we're witnessing with Donald Trump and the vitriol and the hatred and the divisiveness is a manifestation of what has gone on the last 20 and 30 years. And that is the lack of truth and authenticity of people who are elected officials in Washington. We as private citizens must recognize that the democracy of this country, that people fought so hard for and sacrificed so much for, is something that we must embrace and we must participate. And whether or not we're voting for president this year or the next four years, it's the decisions we make every day. It's local politics, it's regional politics, and we must participate and we must vote. And we must get control of the direction of the country and not wait for Washington, not blame Washington, and recognize as we launch today with this new original content series called Upstanders that there are thousands of Americans, ordinary people, doing extraordinary things. These stories must be told and it must be catalytic and not just look at Washington as a problem, but look at the American people and say, we can solve things in our own community.
If you feel this way, why didn't you get into politics earlier? This is just not the time for me to be in politics, but I am a young man. Do we have a headline? Um, Tony Fabrizio, one of Donald Trump's pollsters, said in July that, that in 30 years he has never seen such a divide between D.C. and the D.C. establishment and the media elite, if you want to call it that, uh, and that of Main Street America. So you just talked about Donald Trump. And if you look at the most recent CNN polling, they're really neck and neck. So what about all the American people that are really mad? What about the fact that I drive from Minnesota to New York along the Rust Belt and I see all of these families who've completely lost their future because their jobs are gone? I agree with you and I, I just finished saying that what we're witnessing over the last year, year and a half is directly related to failed policy and false promises and fool's gold of the last 20, 30 years. And the American people who have been passed by and the American people who are angry uh, have every right to stand up and say, we, we have not gotten our share and we have not been represented. I understand that. And I think as a result of that, we must recognize this moment in time, not only this election cycle, but as we go forward as Americans, is a moment in time that we must transform the country, both in terms of its moral obligation and an economic transformation. A horrible headline yesterday out of Chicago, the 500th homicide of the year, yeah. okay? That's more than where they were at in all of 2015. Uh, I came to Chicago a year and a half ago. Starbucks was launching the first of what you've done a number of now called Opportunity Fairs. Really simple idea. Just get a bunch of these kids who've never gotten a chance to even get a job interview in front of all different companies and hire them. And we're talking about you know $10, $11, $12 an hour jobs, right? Uh, what have you learned from those now that you've held them all yeah. over the country about what works and what doesn't work? And why are we seeing more of that? Uh, well, just to frame it, we, we decided that given that there were six million young people not working and not in school, what could we do? And so we convened almost 40 like-minded companies, nonprofits, and local mayors, and we have had uh, a really significant comprehensive job fair in Chicago, Phoenix, Seattle, and, and Los Angeles. In the Chicago one, at, at uh, 6.30, 7 a.m. in the morning, the doors were opening at 8. We had 7,000 young kids, mostly African-American and Hispanic, many of whom were with their parents, who were lining up just for an opportunity. In the last year and a half, uh, with the companies that I've mentioned, uh, we've hired over 100,000 opportunity youth. But here's the headline. Of the people that we have hired, uh, the level of attrition and performance of so-called opportunity youth kids has been better than the people we've hired traditionally at Starbucks because they come to work with such level of passion, no level of entitlement, and they're so proud. And I think this is what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about, the fact, is that we must recognize that this talent is there. Mm -hmm. All we have to do is create the opportunity and open the window. Uh, and these 40 like-minded companies are participating with us to do this right thing. We're now trying to digitize this because we can't have an opportunity youth fair in every city in America. So it's one thing to help someone get a job. Yeah. It's another thing to help them build a career. And another thing, frankly, to help them get a job with, that they can live on. Sure. Uh, the, the debate over the living wage, right, and the fight for 15. Um, $15 an hour, $20 an hour. You've told me before, Howard, there is a tipping point. There are unintended consequences. So, so when it comes to the minimum wage debate, at what point would Starbucks have to then hire fewer workers? If it hit what level? We, or, we, will, we will never be in a position to hire fewer people 
as a result of $15 an hour or where the wage situation is because we will be much better positioned as a company to weather the wage pressure. What I said to you in a different interview was that I thought $15 an hour would have unintentional consequences for small business owners who would not be able to absorb those kinds of wages. And I think before we all jump to the conclusion that $15 an hour is the panacea and the answer, we need to understand that there are lots of other issues that need to be addressed. Many people at Starbucks come to Starbucks as an interim step to something else. Many people are students, many people are doing other things, and many people come as a career and move up. Uh, $12 an hour, $13 an hour at Starbucks in the past has never been defined as something that would provide you and your family with a living wage if you had a family. But the situation is that there's been such a contraction of opportunities in the country that these jobs now are critical to people's future. And that's why, as a company, we decided if, if people are coming to Starbucks and this is their main job, then we have to provide comprehensive health insurance. We have to provide free college tuition, which is costing us a significant amount of money. And we have to do everything we can to provide comprehensive benefits in addition to the wages that we're paying. And I think we've also tried to communicate to our customers that we had to, wait, had to raise prices this year because we can't absorb this ourselves, that this has to be a situation where there's a participation among not only the company, but also the customer. And I think in many cases, that's going to be very difficult for small businesses to be able to navigate through. What can corporations yeah. do to increase diversity in, in, in higher positions, like people of yeah. color and management levels in the C-suite? I mean, it's kind of absurd when you look at yeah. corporate America, the lack of diversity at the top. I don't think any company can be successful in America and not be agnostic when it, com when it comes to color, sexual preference, and we must embrace diversity at every level. A year and a half ago, we drove through Ferguson. Uh, I was just emotionally moved by what I saw, and I said to our people, we need to open up a store in Ferguson. And people said, Ferguson, it's just not going to succeed. We opened a store in Ferguson. We just opened a store in Jamaica, Queens. Uh, two months ago, we were in Johannesburg, South Africa, opening stores there. These are all places where people said Starbucks could succeed. We've given jobs to people who have never had them, most people of color. We've given vendor opportunities to people who supply us with food and other things in that community. And I think your question is so appropriate because the promise of the country the American dream, which is really the platform of how the country has been built, cannot survive if we are a country that is leaving people behind because of their station in life, their zip code, the color of their skin, their sexual preference. We must be a country of inclusion. And I think this is not being discussed at the level it should be. And I think what we're really talking about is this deep sense of humanity and the fracturing of trust and confidence among people who are leading the nation, who talk about these things, but unfortunately do not deliver them. What about at the top? I mean, it's one thing to hire this, right? Yeah. Seriously, I mean, they're, they're, Germany has put, instituted quotas for women on boards. I mean, is it going to take that? Is it going to take quotas to get more diversity at the top? How do you make sure that it's not just those entry-level positions or the mid-manager levels where you reach the diversity you want, but really at the top? Well, I think it's a sad case if we need the government to step in and provide quotas for companies 
to provide diversity on its board or its management team. Uh, I, I think the, 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 what's perverse here is that the companies who have done this well have succeeded the most. And that is what we must promote and that is what we must demonstrate. Uh, but clearly, there is a great need in this country for diverse leadership at all levels of every company. The Race Together campaign, baristas wrote hashtag Race Together on, on cups. And uh, there, was a lot of, there was a lot of mixed reactions. Yeah. I think for all of us at Starbucks, uh, engaging in that discussion was one of the proudest moments we've had in our 45-year history as a company. Uh, it's important to understand the backstory. Uh, after we saw what was happening uh, across the country, we started having a series of, of internal town hall meetings. And I conducted 12 across the country. These, t these town hall meetings in Starbucks parlance are open forums. And uh, they were uh, incredibly emotional and painful to hear what was coming from the people who worked for the company and many people uh, who, uh, just one example, a young 17-year-old, beautiful black man in St. Louis, right outside of Ferguson, stood up to me and said, I'm 17 years old, I don't know if I'll make it to 18. A young man in Seattle said, racism is like humidity. You can feel it, but you can't see it. Uh, there were so many things that happened that made us realize that we could not sit by as a company and allow this to continue without doing something. And our own people were encouraging us. We viewed uh, Race Together as a success. And I'll tell you why. First off, the amount of media coverage that raised the awareness of what we were trying to do was beyond anything we could imagine. Unfortunately, the program was hijacked by social media. We learned a great lesson, and we understood going forward that before we do anything like that before, there must be a greater comprehensive understanding, and we need to do a better job as a company trying to explain intent. What the public does not realize, and what the media didn't realize, is the reason that we shut it down, uh, and this is not something I've ever said publicly before, is because of the concern we had in putting our own people in harm's way. And unfortunately, there were things going on uh, in some cities across the country that were of grave concern to us. And I think this, again, speaks to the need for conversation, for empathy, for compassion, and a deeper sense of humanity. You know, I, at, an, at, an, at our annual meeting, uh, of our shareholders, I played uh, with great respect Robert F. Kennedy's impromptu speech on, the, on standing on the flatbed truck in Indianapolis in 1968 on the eve of, the, of MLK's assassination. And he spoke of the need for love, of compassion, of empathy. And he quieted the city of Indianapolis while there were riots across the country. And we have unfortunately lost a few things. We've lost the ability of one person to be the kind of statesman in the country who's above reproach, who can speak to everybody from their heart in a way that is truthful and people believe. 
And we've also, unfortunately, lost in many ways because of, the, of social media and the ability to spew hate anonymously throughout the country today, throughout the world, the ability to have conversation, even though we may not agree with one another, the ability to listen and understand and put our feet in the shoes of the other person based on their own life experience. And I would submit one of the great needs of elected officials today is not only transformative policy, but to start an opportunity for common dialogue so that we can embrace our differences. The irony of what I'm saying is we have stores in 75 countries around the world, different language, different politics, different dress, different customs. What I've learned in traveling all these places is that we have so many more similarities than differences, and yet, in our own country, where we're bound by one common idea, the promise of a country, we can't seem to get along. Thanks so much for tuning in to this edition of Boss Files. You can follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Poppy Harlow CNN. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.